Crazy love. That sounds like a crazy concept. God of wonders. Today we're going to start this whole series talking about love at first sight. Anybody here ever fallen in love at first sight? Now, come on. When's the last? Hey, I love that. Several people said that they did. Uh, love at first sight. Uh, I just wanted to ask how long it's been since you have fallen in love. Um, there's several times I've seen pies. Blackberry pie. I've fallen in love at first sight. Kind of dangerous for us to go to to the Humane Society. The last time I think that Kathy and I, my wife, uh, who was on the piano today, the last time that that Kathy and I went to a Humane Society with the intention of picking up a dog, we got a terrier mix. Maggie was her name. Uh, She ended up being 80 pounds. So I always say there was a terrier mix, a terrier and a Shetland pony mix together. That's what it was. It's dangerous to fall in love. We fell in love. And it, and it was bad enough we fell in love with this dog and they were pulling tags as we were going through. And, and Kathy said, what are you pulling that tag for? We had fallen in love with this little puppy and they said, oh, this dog is going to be put away today. Oh, yeah, everybody. Oh, couldn't do it. Brought her home. So, spent 11 years with a, a faithful companion in this, in this dog. You ever fall in love? The problem is sometimes over a period of time we get hardened. We get, we get to the point where we stop falling in love. We, we get cynical, and, and that happens to a lot of different people. When's the last time you were in awe? Where, the last time you were in love? The last time you were in wonder over something? I remember uh, there, was a, there was a book that came out some years ago. I don't even remember the title, but it was, it was based on the whole concept of what happened during the Apollo launchings. Uh, how many of you remember Apollo? You, you remember the Apollo... How many of you have read about it in the history book? Raise your hand. Okay, that just makes me mad. Okay. No, the Apollo, uh, when, we, when we were sending Apollo up into outer space and, and some of the first big rockets, the Atlas rocket was 35 stories tall. 35 stories tall. And there were some hardened journalists that came, and they were going to do a late afternoon, early evening launch just as the sun was going down in Florida. And the, the journalists came, and they had seen a lot. They'd been around the world. They'd covered world, uh, wars, and they'd covered all the major events. And these journalists were brought together by NASA because the, the, the interest was kind of ebbing on the whole, the, the whole Apollo project. And these journalists came together and they had this big party for them outside, a picnic. They had tables full of food and the journalists were saying, yeah, they brought us together, just came for the food. And, you know, there's no alcohol. What kind of a party is it without any alcohol? And they were making smart aleck comments. And about that time in the background, you could hear this eight, seven, six, five, four. And the engine started on that Atlas rocket. And even though they were miles away, no one could hear anything. The, the roar was so loud that it drowned out every word that they said. And all of a sudden, the ground began to, to, to tremble and to quake. And some of the food was being shaken off of the table onto the ground. And the chairs were tipping over. And some of them had had computers and things that they had set up. And the, and the computers were beginning to topple over. And, they were all, and all of a sudden, this, the whole sky was filled with this huge orange ball of fire as the Atlas rocket took off right over their head. And the reporter that was writing about the incident said, all of a sudden, their mouth dropped open and there was an awe and a wonder at the power of a rocket. It changed the way they acted. They began to help each other get their things and straighten the tables and put the chairs back up and get the computers going. 
What if we had new eyes to the wonder of who God is? What if we had a new vision, a new, a new look at who God is? Would it change the way we feel about him? I believe it would. God gives us a magnificent glimpse of who he is. Look at what it says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. It says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, something you can't see, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, it says. The, the invisible is all of a sudden clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Here's where we're going with this. There's a longing in our hearts that only God can fill when we see again who he is in all of his crazy love. There's a longing in our hearts only God can fill when we see who he is because of his crazy love. And we're going to look at Romans chapter 1. If you have your Bible, turn to chapter, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, because we're going to... We're going to Ask this question, what has God made evident? What has he made plain, as plain as the, the face, as your face is? What has he made evident to us? Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Look at what it says. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Wait a second. Who'd be ashamed of the gospel? That's good news. I'm not ashamed of the greatest news ever, he says, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Paul is writing from a Jewish perspective. In his world, there were only two people. It was not black and white. It was not different ethnic groups. You were either a Jew or you were a Gentile. He said, everyone, Jew and Gentile, who believes? Verse 17, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. It's made evident. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Look at verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. All of a sudden he changed. He's been talking about the righteousness of God and how big and great and grand God is and all that he's done for us. And all of a sudden he talks about the wrath of God. Why? Because he wants, he wants to grab our attention. When you see the wrath of God, it ought to stop you for just a moment and it ought to, to grab your attention. He says it's being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness. We'll talk about that in a minute. Look at verse 19. Since what, ha what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain or evident to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. What has God made evident? Well, the one thing he's made evident, if nothing else, is that God is powerful. He's, God is eternally powerful. He's infinitely powerful. He's been powerful from, from before the beginning, and he will be powerful forever. He is eternally powerful. What does that mean? Well, I thought maybe that we could take a visual look at that. Uh, Hubble telescope. You, you, know, you remember Hubble telescope? This is Mars in, in 2001. Mars in 2001 came close enough. It was only 40 million miles away in 2001. In 2003, it came within 35 million. It's the closest that it will come until the year 2287. It, it, it fluctuates. The closest pass is between 35 and 63 million miles away. And this is, this is the second closest time. Look at that. You know what that is? That's a windstorm at the no, northern polar. And there's another one down there. And then there's a third one. This is Mars. That's just, you know, it's close, 40 million miles away. But, but what about Saturn? Oh, here's Saturn. This is, this is too cool. 
Now, Saturn, it's a little further away, right? 775 million miles away. This is crazy. This was taken in, uh, in 2009. And I don't know if you can see, and you see the little dot right there? That is a moon. That is uh, Enceladus. And that's its shadow. So there's the moon in the shadow. There's another moon there. Um, and that is Dion. And anybody know what that moon is? Titan. That's the biggest one. And then look at there. There's a fourth one right there. And this is the ring and the shadow that comes from it. There's a fourth moon, and that's Mimas. And then again, this is 775 million miles away from Earth. And you say, well, I've seen the solar system before. Well, then let's look a little beyond the solar system. How about this? This is a planetary nebula. This is a little further away, 4,000 light years away. Anybody remember how you get the light year? You remember how you do that? The speed of light over, that's 186,000 miles per second. Then you multiply that out, it's 5.5 trillion miles is one light year. And so this is 4,000 times 5.5 trillion. And that is actually right there, that is a star that has exploded. And this is, it's a planetary nebula. It's not a planet at all. This is what has come from the sun when it exploded. <clears throat> By the way, the scientists say that our sun is going to do that <clears throat> uh, in 5 billion years. So you kids, uh, just remember that we told you that, okay, 5 billion years from now. And you say, well, that's one of the closest things that we can see outside of our solar system. Uh, but let's maybe go a little further. Here's the Carina Nebula. This is crazy. This is, by the way, from here to here is three light years across. Three times 5.5 trillion miles. 16.5 trillion miles across. And these, you can see the stars, except that's actually not a star. Each of those is a galaxy. That's, this is just crazy. 7,500 light years away. For Hubble to take this photograph, by the way, they had to train on the same spot and keep the, the telescope there for nine and a half hours to get that picture because it's so far away and it's so dark. And you say, well, I'm still not impressed. Okay, well, then let's just go one step a little further. Here's one of the nearest uh, spiral galaxies that's close to us. And you see this? These are all, these are all stars in the galaxy these are all, uh, excuse me, these are all galaxies within the galaxy. Here's the, the hub of this spiral galaxy that comes out with other galaxies. There are huge blue stars, red stars involved in the galaxies, and that's why all of the other things that you see around them are colored by the light. Uh, and by the way, this is 15 million light years away. This is 15 million light years away. How powerful is our God? He created all that. It says, with a word, he spoke the universe into being. How powerful is our God? I, I mean, we look at things like this. Uh, by the way, since Hubble went up 20 years ago, and it's, and it's still orbiting the Earth, 353 miles above the Earth. Since Hubble went up, there have been 350 billion galaxies, not stars. We're in the Milky Way galaxy. There have been 350 billion galaxies discovered that we didn't know were there. Can you fathom that? We can't even begin to fathom that. G.K. Chesterton many years ago said, the world is not lacking in wonders, but in a sense of wonder about God. 
You know, I, I did that from space. You could do the same thing from physics. You could do it from biology. You could do it from uh, biochemistry or, or genetics. All of the same thing. If you would look through the microscope, you're going to see wonders that you can't even fathom, folks. There are so many things out there that, that tell us that there's a God. And you say, well, I don't look through a telescope and I don't look through a microscope, so how could I know that? We went to Yellowstone, Kathy and I, on the way back from South Dakota this summer on our vacation. We came back to Yellowstone Park. And we stood at the edge of, the, of a herd of buffalo far enough away so that they didn't charge us. And we looked at God's magnificent creatures. And, and then we saw all of these herds of elk. And we got close to a couple of the, of the, the male elk, just incredible uh, antlers and, and incredible beings. And, and then on the way to the hotel for that night, we stopped. And there was this little young moose, a, a male moose in, in a in a stream or in a river he was eating something uh, some algae or plants out of the river and we stopped and we got within probably 20 30 yards of this moose and, and we came away saying isn't god good we of all people should be able to see we live near lassen and and you see the the, the majesty of that mountain and you and, and by mount shasta and by lake shasta and whiskey town you go to the lake how can you say there is no god he's powerful Colossians 1.16 says it this way. Look at what it says. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. That's how powerful God is. And by the way, that picture right there, that's an actual picture. That's, uh, that's another picture from uh, what they call the coma cluster. It's 320 million light years away. There's over 20,000 stars in just that screen, in that one slide right there. Do we understand who God is? Brent Curtis and John Eldridge, in a book called The Sacred Romance, wrote, The heart yearns within us, a longing for transcendence, the desire to be part of something larger than ourselves, to be part of something out of the ordinary that is good. Psalm 19, 1-3 says it this way, The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. If you look at our creation, if you look at the world around us, if you look through a microscope or a telescope and you say there is no God, then just like Romans 1 says, you have somehow, you have tried to suppress the truth. God is eternally powerful. Number two, God is exquisitely unique. He says he has a divine nature. He is exquisitely unique. What does that mean? Well, what it means is that we, ha we have a good forgetter. Have you ever forgotten anything? I said, have you ever forgotten anything? Yeah. Some of us forgot that I even asked a question. We're good at forgetting. We have spiritual amnesia, don't we? We learn something and then we forget it. We learn it and then we forget it. You know all that we've been talking about with God being eternally powerful, but you forget that He's also incredibly unique, exquisitely unique. There's only one. We were just singing, you are holy, holy. What does that mean? It means set apart. It means one of a kind. There's no other one like Him is exactly what it means. There's only one God. We don't get that because there's, there's nothing else on this earth that's like that. Anybody ever try to sell you something saying, this picture is one of a kind? Is that true? Not with, not with modern photography, not with modern uh, copiers, not with modern all kinds of other technology. There's no such thing. 
Kathy and I went to a Plaza art show many, many years ago, and we saw a picture, we liked it, we, we bought it, we got it home, we gave it away as a gift, and when we got, got ready to give it away, we said, you know what, we'd really like to have that picture, and we went back to the artist and said, could you do another one for us? And she did. It wasn't exactly like it, but it was another picture. You say, well, he's one of a kind. No, there's a lot of men, there's a lot of women out there, but God is unique. There's only one. There's so many attributes that we can talk about, and, and that's where I would really recommend something like this book, Crazy Love. A lot of attributes of God. What does that mean? It, it's who he is. It, it describes him. It's hard to describe someone who's infinite, but it begins to, to kind of tell us who he is. We've already said he's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. God knows all things. Did you know that God knows what's going to happen tomorrow like it happened yesterday? That's scary, isn't it? God knows what's going to happen to you tomorrow. You may not know. In fact, I don't know what's going to happen to me tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen in the next 10 seconds. But God knows. He's all-knowing. God is ever-present. There's a, there's a place in the Psalms where it says, where can I go from your presence? If I go to the top of the mountain, if I go to the bottom of the sea, you are there. God's ever-present. God's eternal. God is eternal. What does that mean? The Bible starts out, in the beginning, God. God already existed in the beginning. Well, how can that be? If it's the beginning, how can God have already been there? God was there be before the beginning, and when we consider everything to be done, it will still be there. It's the one problem that the evolutionists have that they've never been able to resolve because even the evolutionists say that the universe started, and they'll say, billions and billions of years ago. That's when, that's when the universe started, but it started with a big bang. And my question to them is, great, who started the Big Bang? If you want to believe that, if you want to believe that, then at least tell me who was instrumental in this. The question to me is someone who's eternal, someone who's all-powerful. There's so much that we could look at about that. I, I've got some references, and because of time, I'm not going to go to them, but, but just think about the fact that we live in an incredible planet did you know that there are 11 systems in our planet, the gravity and, and the radiation and, and so many other things, our atmosphere and the, the cooling properties of the continents and the oceans and everything else? There are 11 properties of our planet. There's a book called Rare Earth. Uh, the two writers of it were Peter Ward and Donald Brownlee. And they say that if any of those things were more than 2% one way or the other, any of the 11, we could not exist. That life as we know it would not exist. Not just human life, but plant life, any life. 2% on 11 different things. You think about how far we are from the sun. Close enough to be warm, but if you go to Mars, how warm is it? If you go to Saturn, how warm is it? If you go to Venus, how hot is it? We're just in the right place. God is an incredible God. And he's unique. And he's places where he wants us to be. He's eternal. He's just. He's loving. I could go on and on. R.C. Sproul says it this way, Men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. Isaiah 6.3 says it this way. Look at what it says. And they were calling to one another. Whoa, whoa, who's the they? Isaiah gets this picture of God and he says he was so immense. He, he was, it was as if he fulfilled all of the universe with just the train of his, of his garment. That's the, the extra fabric. The extra fabric of his garment, it seemed like it just filled the whole universe. And, and Isaiah comes and there were these angels and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, 
holy. In the Hebrew, again, there's not a good word for the holiest. And so if they want to, to denote the, the, the greatest degree of holiness, they repeat it three times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Isaiah was blown away. He'd seen something, seen someone he'd never seen before. And we suppress the truth. And we need to get to this. If we don't get to the rest of the message, then, then stay with me on this. We suppress it two ways, in godless, godlessness and wickedness. Those are two Greek words that have huge importance to us. The godlessness there is asibia. It's living as if God did not exist. We suppress the truth when we live as if God does not exist. Did you get that? You've seen these pictures of Hubble, and, and we're going to go out, and the truth is, for the next six days, many Christians will live as if God did not exist. And he says that's godlessness. Do you have a cognizance? Do you have an awareness? Do you have an understanding of who God is every day? And the other one is wickedness, and it's a very similar word, adikia. Asibia is godlessness. Adikia is the Greek word, and it's deciding to live for oneself. Francis Chan says it this way, much of this world is bent on ignoring or merely tolerating God. Do you ignore God or do you just tolerate Him? We have a longing for Him that nothing else will fulfill. You know about longings, right? You, you know about longings. How many of you drink coffee every morning? Raise your hand. Okay, now I want your spouse to answer if they don't get their coffee, how much fun are they to be around? Ooh. Yeah. We have longings. I think one of the four food groups is chocolate. I think that it, if not, it should be. I live, man cannot be, live by chocolate alone, but you'll sure be happy while you're still doing it. Okay? Cho I mean, you have longings. God says I have a long, you should have a longing, a God-shaped vacuum is what the church father said for God. God is eternally powerful. God is exquisitely unique. Well, then let's just look what has God made available. The other end of this. I want to just read through these verses. Jeremiah 29, I will not keep you. But Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 14. I just want to spend a couple of minutes looking at this. What has God made available? Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 14. This is written in the Old Testament. It's written to Israel. They're in captivity. They have... They have disobeyed God. And look what it says. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. God says, you're in captivity. You've been overrun by Babylon, but 70 years from the beginning, I will come back and you'll be free. Verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Do you seek him with all your heart? Look at verse 14. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. 
Three things that I see in these verses that God not only has made evident to us, but made available. I, I, he has made, first of all, He's made His sovereignty available. His, we, we need to lovingly trust in God's sovereignty. He's made this available, and you say, well, yeah, like I want His sovereignty. What does that even mean? It means God's in control. It means that God is God. It means that He is the Lord and the King, and He's the one in control. And He makes this available. And you say, well, I don't really want to know that. Well, you do if you're Israel and you're in captivity. Because you do, if you've been, been banned, you've been banished from the land for 70 years. 70 years is a lifetime. Oh, yeah, that's right. A lot of the people who went into captivity would not come out of the captivity. And I think that was God's intention. 70 years, they paid for it. But even then, God demonstrated His love. Look at Jeremiah 31.3. It says, The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I've loved you with an everlasting love. If God is in control, if God is all-powerful, if God is all-knowing, and He loves us with an everlasting love, an everlasting love means it never stops. I've drawn you with loving kindness, He says. Is that true today? I mean, this is a, this is a word for Israel. It's not for us. Well, guess what? We've been banished from the promised land for 70 years. That's about the typical lifespan, isn't it? But he's drawn us with an everlasting love. He says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. And his loving kindness draws us back to him. We're going to go to be with him if we trust him. Remember what Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I've been reading a fascinating book called uh, My God is True by Paul Wolf. Uh, Paul is an interesting fellow, and this is what he writes. He quotes J.I. Packer first. He says, uh, from Knowing God, Our thoughts of God are not great enough. We fail to reckon with the reality of His limitless wisdom and power. Because we ourselves are limited and weak, we imagine that at some points God is too, and we find it hard to believe that He is not. Did you get that? We, we impose our limits on God. We think, well, if we forget, God must forget. We think if, God, if we're unfair, God must be unfair. And that's not true. We find it hard to believe that He is not. We think of God as too much like we are. Put this mistake right, says God. Learn to acknowledge the full majesty of your incomparable God and Savior. Paul Wolf wrote this. He was 28 years old when he was diagnosed with a, a huge tumor on his back, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and for the next year his life was, was miserable. And the doctors didn't give him that much of a chance of, of living through it. Then, look at what he, then listen to what he writes. So then let us return to our God and know him afresh. Let us know that God is still sovereign and thus put presumption to death. We do not reign. The Lord reigns. And he does so every moment, all our lives. He reigns before, during, and after every trial and every blessing. He owes no man a happily ever after of health and wealth, peace and prosperity in this life. Powerful words from a man who is going through cancer. We trust doctors. We trust pilots. Why wouldn't we trust the one who's in control? He's made it available. Here's the second one. Lovingly submit to God's plans. Lovingly submit to God's plans. God has a plan for you. I've got news for you. My wife has a plan for me. Your wife has a plan for you. Your spouse has a plan for you. You know what I love about my wife's plans? I can trust my wife's plans because my wife loves me. 
I have never followed Kathy's plan and come out less because of it or a loser because of it. Because when I follow the plans of one who loves me like that, it's a wonderful situation. It's a wonderful life to live. God has a plan. I have experience that tells me her plans are good for me. Last Sunday night when we were doing a study in, in Daniel chapter 11, I, I had run across something and I shared it with the, the uh, congregation. I want to share it again this morning. It's called He's the King, We're Not. It's from a book Randy Alcorn wrote uh, called Dominion. It's a novel. And it's at the very end of the novel and Clarence, the, the, the person who is the, the main character in this particular book, He's been reading the Chronicles of Narnia night after night after night to his kids. Uh, C.S. Lewis's great, uh, great books that, that talked about this other world. And Aslan, the, the, the lion, is the symbol of the Lion of Judah, of, of Jesus Christ. And it says, uh, Clarence picked up the last Narnia book, opening to the bookmark at the beginning of the final chapter. Celeste, his, uh, one of his children, said, What does it mean when it keeps saying, Aslan, the lion, is not a tame lion? Well, Clarence hesitated, maybe that he's good, he's faithful, but he's not predictable. He doesn't always do things the way we want him to. And you you remember, this is God he's talking about. He's not a genie you can call out of a bottle to do your bidding. You know how a lion tamer is a man who makes the lion do what he wants? Well, God is not a tame lion. We can ask him for what we want, but we can't make him do it. He is the king. We are not. Do you get that? He's the king. We're not. He calls the shots. We don't. We have plans that make sense to us. He has better plans that make sense to him. What? We have plans that make sense to us, but his plans are better, and they make sense to him. No matter what happens, we need to learn to trust in his wisdom, not our own. Folks, you need to understand what that means. When we lovingly submit to God's plans, his plan is far better than anything we could imagine. I want the one with the best experience, with the most wisdom, with the most insight to make the plans for me. Look at what it says in Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Paul is writing in, the, in Romans and all of a sudden he just stops for a second. He says, don't you get it? God knows. He's wise. Oh, the depths of, of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. He knows. Follow his plan. What I find ironic is from time to time people will say, Pastor, I'm going to be in Kansas City. Where would you go eat? Why would they ask me where I would eat in Kansas City? Because I grew up in Kansas City for 20 years. I know restaurants. Look at me. Do I look like I have not eaten at every restaurant I could find? Come on. And and somebody will say, well, I'm going to go to South Dakota. And they'll go to Kathy and they'll say, where should we go in South Dakota? And I'll say, it's all flat. It doesn't matter. No. There's some beautiful places in South Dakota. Why would they come ask us? Because we've been there. If you want to know about eternity, why don't you ask the one who's been there? Lovingly submit to God's plan. Here's the last one. Lovingly reciprocate God's love. God is not just good. He is good to me, to you. He's good to us. God is not just good. He is good specifically to those who are his children. Psalm 86.5. Look at what it says. Psalm 86.5 says, You are forgiving and good, O Lord, abounding in love. What does that word mean? It means it just keeps piling it on, keep pouring it on, abounding in love to all who call to you. 
Look at how God's revealed his love. Look around you. Look at the world that God has created. Look at the fact that you're living in one of the most wonderful nations in all of the earth. And if God is in control, then that means that he did that on purpose. God wanted you here on this earth. And he wanted you here in this nation. He wanted you here in this place today. Look at how many times God has shown us his love. We have the, the ability to worship. Think about what God has done for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in, in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, I, I, I want to stop. We're, we're going to head home. And some of you are going to say, okay, if God is so good, what about my problems? What about my cancer? What about my children? What about, what about those things that have happened to me? Paul Wolf wrote the book, My God is True, 10 years after his cancer. He's not had a recurrence as far as, as he knows. He's living healthy now. But the, he said, my God is true whether I die or I live. My God is true. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says the, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Our light and our momentary troubles. I was given a fascinating book. It's a series of letters by Francois Fenelon. Uh, Francois Fenelon lived many years ago in, in France. And this man just went by Fenelon. And this book is fascinating as you read these letters and you begin to see the depth of this man. And he went through tragedy after tragedy and, and he stood strong for the Lord and he stood against the, the church that was trying to, to get him into illegalism and some other things. And he stood strong and he stayed true to Jesus Christ. And he wrote at one point, someone said, why don't you just read the Bible and go to church and stop causing trouble. And he says this, to just read the Bible, attend church, and avoid big sins. Is this passionate, wholehearted love for God? No. What I must do is live for Him because He loved me. 1 John 4, 9 says, we love because He first loved. There was a pastor by the name of Randy Butler. Randy Butler uh, went to one of Randy uh, Alcorn's seminars on heaven he showed up, and he's a pastor, and, and uh, Randy Alcorn said to him, why are you here? And he says, well, for 20 years I've been a pastor. For 20 years I've been married, and, and we had a, a son, a teenage son, and uh, our teenage son was 17 years old. He was coming home from a church event, and a drunk driver broadsided him and killed him instantly. And Randy Butler said to Randy Alcorn, I just want to know more about heaven because I want to know what my son is experiencing today. Randy Alcorn said, that's a very mature way of looking at this. And Randy Butler said to him, oh, it's not mature at all. For three months, every night when I went to bed, I screamed at God. I didn't curse him, but I screamed at God. And, and Randy Alcorn said, what was the scream that you kept saying over and over? And he says, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? He said, I would go out back because my wife couldn't stand to hear it in the house. And I would go out back in the starry night and I would scream, what were you thinking when you took my son? What were you thinking when you let that drunk driver out? What were you thinking, God? Just what were you thinking? Randy Alcorn said, wow, that's pretty heavy. You're a pastor. He says, I haven't been able to preach for, for, for the whole time. For three months, he said, I've been out of the pulpit. And one night, I started to go out, and I choked, and I couldn't say anything, and I just looked up at the stars. 
said it wasn't an audible voice, but I knew without any doubt that the Lord said back to me, Randy, Randy, don't you know, I lost my son too. Randy Butler said, that was the day when I looked into the stars and I looked into the power and the majesty of God and I fell on my knees and said, God, forgive me, cleanse me, and use me. It may not be that dramatic in your life, but God will one day come and say, I know what you don't know and I have plans that you cannot imagine and you need to trust me. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Father, what we need, what we need so desperately is to recognize who you are. Because when we see who you are, Father, it doesn't take the pain of losing a son away. It doesn't take the pain of the cancer away. It doesn't take the pain of a, of a broken marriage or a, a failed financial uh, decision. It doesn't take any of those things away. But it brings us back into the reality that you know best. And that what you promised in Romans 8.28 is still true. That you, that you cause all things to work together for good to those who love God. To those who are the called according to your purpose. And we can't begin to understand how that all pieces together. But that's why you're God and we're not. That's why you're the king and we're not. And the truth is, Father, there's some who are listening to my voice today, either by radio or here in this auditorium, that they still want to control. They still want to be the king of their own life. And they'll never find the satisfaction and the joy and the crazy love until we finally come and bow our knees and say, you're the king. Thank you, Father, for that truth that you are King of kings and Lord of lords, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. May we live that truth every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.